from Movendi International, I am Mike Dünnbier. Welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast in our 18th episode. For the three-year anniversary of the historic alcohol minimum unit pricing policy coming into effect in Scotland, we focus in this episode on the first evidence from full MUP implementation and we discuss wider issues around the alcohol floor price in particular and alcohol policy development in general. The conversation for this podcast episode was recorded on May 5th, 2021 and final recordings were made on May 13th. For the 18th episode of the Alcohol Issues podcast, we welcome Alison Douglas. Alison is the Chief Executive of Alcohol Focus Scotland. She joined Alcohol Focus in December 2015. Her commitment to and experience of preventing and reducing alcohol harm stems from her time as Head of Alcohol Policy and Delivery at the Scottish Government from 2007 to 2012. In this capacity, Alison was responsible for developing and implementing Scotland's national alcohol strategy called Changing Scotland's Relationship with Alcohol. Alison previously worked as a policy advisor to Scottish ministers, advising on issues ranging from prostitution to GM crops and the marine environment. From April 2012 until she joined Alcohol Focus Scotland, Alison was Head of Public Bodies and Public Service Reform with responsibility for advising ministers on reform and ensuring the effectiveness of public bodies. Before joining Scottish Government, Alison worked for the UK Research Councils, including seven years in their European office in Brussels, latterly as Director. She has served as a member of Edinburgh's Children's Panel and is a former Poverty Truth Commissioner. Alcohol Focus Scotland is the national charity working to prevent and reduce alcohol-related harm. Alison will also explain a bit more about the important work that Alcohol Focus Scotland is doing. In our conversation, we take a deep dive into the historic and trailblazing policy of alcohol minimum unit pricing in Scotland. Alison and I discuss how it works and why it was needed in the first place, actually. Alison explains how it's going right now after three years of MUP implementation. And I ask the questions. What is the evidence in terms of alcohol consumption, alcohol harms and public support for the alcohol floor price in Scotland after three years of its implementation? I also used the opportunity to ask Alison about lessons learned across the entire period, including the advocacy struggle to get the MUP adopted, then to defend it against alcohol industry litigation and finally to get it implemented properly. So Alison shares a few highlights in the wider historic perspective. I really enjoyed this conversation with Alison to gain deeper insights and understandings of how policy can actually shape norms and culture, the importance of bold leaders 
and the significance of the alcohol industry's interference not only in policy processes but also in public perception of and discussion about what constitutes alcohol harm. Alison shares thoughtful reflections that really resonate coming from one of the champions at the forefront of successful alcohol policy advocacy. And so we also talk about the future of alcohol policy development in Scotland. Alison and I discuss bold ideas such as raising the floor price, improving alcohol availability regulations, better protecting people from alcohol marketing and improving alcohol labeling in Scotland. Here is our conversation. Hi, Alison, and uh, very welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. I'm really uh, thankful that you take time to talk with me today. So warm welcome, Alison. Thanks, Mike. It's brilliant to be with you. I know you've been doing a lot of fantastic broad podcasts, so I'm really uh, pleased to join you. Thank you. And this is a great, I think, opportunity and moment in time. It's three years. Um, it's the three years anniversary for minimum unit pricing in Scotland. But last night, we also got the great news from Ireland that the government decided to introduce minimum unit pricing, I think, in January 2022. So rather soon. So now we have this these two moments in time that I think allow us to focus a little bit more on minimum unit pricing. And I'm really looking forward to discuss these alcohol policy issues alcohol pricing issues with you. But I thought, Alison, we can begin with, um, could you explain what the work is that Alcohol Focus Scotland is doing, just to get an understanding? Alcohol Focus Scotland is an NGO based in Scotland, and our purpose is to prevent and reduce alcohol harm. And we're very much an evidence-based organisation. So we look at what are the interventions that are going to be most effective and in reducing and preventing alcohol harm. So obviously we, we take the World Health Organisation best buys as the, the kind of core of our work, but we also do a range of other work um, around the effect of uh, alcohol harm on people other than the drinker, particularly children and young people. And we deliver quite a lot of different types of training. And um, some of that about trying to protect children and young people from harm. Um, but the, the best buys around the affordability, the availability and the marketing of alcohol are, are the kind of core components of our work. So we're advocating for policies to be implemented to, to affect those aspects of, of how alcohol is, is sold in Scotland. I, I have to say, Alison, the harm to others dimension and the work that you are doing there, especially also in protecting children, um, is very impressive and I think would... Uh, deserve a special podcast conversation as well. So we are looking to what you are in, in Scotland doing there as well. Uh, it's very inspiring to learn from some of the approaches that, that you have developed there. And you mentioned um, the three best buys that you are advocating for as the core of the policy package. 
do I understand it correctly that uh, we can understand Alcohol Focus Scotland as maybe the initiator of the campaign for minimum unit pricing many, many years ago, actually? Um, I think it would be fairer to say that um, Scottish Health Action on Alcohol Problems, um, our, our sister organisation, SHAP, um, really led the charge. And it, it, but it, you're right, the, the connection is strong because um, actually Evelyn Gillen, who was the first director of SHAP and then came to Alcohol Focus Scotland as chief executive mm-hmm. um, before me, um, Evelyn personally was really the person who had the vision and uh, helped build the support for the policy in Scotland. Um, so I think both SHAP and Alcohol Focus Scotland can take a bit, bit of the credit. Um, but, you know, really, we have to pay tribute to, to Evelyn, um, who, who's sadly no longer with us. And I met Evelyn, I remember, at a a conference in Stockholm in, I think, 2009. And that was actually, to be honest, the first time for me to hear about minimum unit pricing. We were so focused on alcohol taxation, excise taxes. And so is it correct to think about this time frame that the campaign commenced around 2009 or did that work? begin even earlier in in Scotland? It it was slightly earlier than that. Um, I think it was probably around 2007-2008 that SHAP produced a report looking at different pricing mechanisms. And, you know, you're right that um, it's long been recognised that price is you know, really important lever in reducing consumption and, uh, and, and therefore harm. But because taxation was so well established, um, that tended to be the default mechanism for for most people. Of course, here in Scotland, because we've got limited devolved powers, there's the practical aspect that we couldn't use taxation. That would be uh, reliant on the the UK governments to uh, set the, the, the duty levels. Um, so that wasn't open um, as an option in Scotland, but we had a particularly acute alcohol problem in Scotland. So Evelyn and others were looking at, OK, so what pricing mechanisms might be open to us? And, you know, they were looking internationally and looking at what was happening in Canada in particular um, around some of the, the approaches that had been taken at state level over there and reached the conclusion that minimum unit price, um, which sets a floor price below which uh, a, a unit of alcohol cannot be sold. So it affects the retail price, the price that the you know, the the consumer is paying um, very directly in a way that sometimes tax doesn't because uh, the the producer, the retailer can absorb some of that that cost. Um, So that that was kind of partly why um, minimum unit price became the the preferred mechanism in in Scotland. But I think, you know, we would recognise that combination of taxation and minimum unit price is probably the be- the best mix, but taxation that is again based on the alcohol content, um, which isn't really the system that we have at the moment, unfortunately. But there, there will actually be a, a consultation at UK level on alcohol duty, hopefully later this year, and there may be an opportunity to to in- 
restructure the the duty regime so that it it actually is providing more of a public health benefit rather than uh, you know what the treasury sees as its principal purpose raising raising money. Yeah. Yeah, I think now you have already talked about some interesting points that I will get back to um, how minimum unit pricing works in, in Scotland, how you embed it into a wider policy mix. You mentioned already the best buys, but I think the policy response to alcohol harm in, in Scotland is even more comprehensive. And often the focus is just in quotation marks on minimum unit pricing. So I'm looking forward to get back into this But Alison, you also said that um, uh, the colleagues at Sharp, Evelyn, they understood that uh, Scotland had an acute alcohol problem in the beginning of the 2000s. Could you just describe this? What was going on in Scotland at that time? The the level of deaths in Scotland was really on a very dramatic increase, um, in particular alcohol liver disease uh, related deaths which you know um the, the the graph that we were were seeing at that time was actually an almost unbelievable increase an almost exponential increase in alcohol liver disease deaths um and that that's the sort of data um and i'm sure we'll talk a lot about evidence and data um that really provided the the political impetus to do something about this to to think about more radical approaches to addressing the problem you know in those early 2000s as you say everything was pointing very much in the wrong direction something was going badly wrong and and what was going badly wrong really was that we had seen a, a real displacement of where people were getting their alcohol so around about Uh, 1990 or so, about half of the alcohol sold in Scotland was sold in pubs and restaurants and clubs, and half of it was sold in shops. Um, but by the early 2000s, three quarters of the alcohol was being sold out of shops. And that was being driven by very cheap alcohol, which the supermarkets were competing in order to bring people into their shops to buy all their groceries. And they were driving the price down um, so that we were seeing prices ultimately around about uh, 18 pence per unit, um, which would be about 20, 21 cent. Um, so, you know, really rock bottom prices. And those, those were for uh, very strong ciders in particular and that's the link back to duty as well because um it was the, the this anomaly in the duty system that was enabling people to produce alcohol you know strong ciders that that fitted that uh, that duty system so that they were paying very low rates of duty mm. relative to the amount of alcohol in those drinks and those drinks were very much favoured by people with you know, very heavy patterns of drinking. Mm. I wanted to ask, Alison, that so many people, th that alcohol-related liver disease increased and alcohol-related deaths from liver disease increased, right? Am I understanding it correctly? What does that mean for the community, for Scottish society? What is the harm? 
how do families experience the harm? Well, I think that's a really good question, Mike, because if if you had asked most people in Scotland um, in the kind of early 2000s what their worries were about alcohol, what you would probably have heard was um, about homeless street drinkers um, and also about uh, disorder outside pubs and clubs on a Friday and a Saturday night. Um, so the problem was conceived, or, or people's perception of the problem was much more that it was it was people who were alcohol dependent and who were destitute as a result of that, or it was people who were becoming violent um, when they drank too much on on a particular occasion, and there was not that greater awareness of the wider harm. Uh, you know, the wider health harms, but as you've just kind of indicated, that those wider social harms. So um, the impact on families and on children to people other than the drinker was really just not, not being recognised. Um, so a, a core part of the work was really to try and build that fuller picture of the, the true extent of alcohol harm and how that was affecting all of the things that we aspired to as a nation, you know, wanting our children to grow up healthier and happier and, you know, to learn and grow um, and for our communities to be safe and, uh, and thriving places. Uh, and, and all of this, this, this kind of extreme use of alcohol in our society was really having a profound impact on our ability to achieve all of that. And when did the government then adopt this alcohol policy reform package? Because if I remember correctly, Scotland adopted an alcohol strategy or something like that. When was that and what was contained in it? Yes, yeah, so I mentioned earlier about, you know, that the political recognition that something extreme was going on here and that we needed to think more radically about the, the solutions. Um, so we, we actually published a consultation in 2008 because uh, it was kind of trying to think about all of the things that could possibly be done to, uh, to address this, this growing problem. Um, and that was, I think, because the package was fairly radical at that time, the feeling was that rather than present it as, um, you know, here are a set of proposals and this will be followed swiftly by legislation, um, that it was better to put it out for, for consultation and then uh, take people more with us on that, on that journey. Um, and there were things that were in that original proposition that, you know, didn't, didn't make the cut, right? So uh, most obvious one was raising the age of off-sales purchase to 21 years. Um, that, that very quickly um, was killed off by uh, an opposition from students who I suspect were uh, supported and encouraged by the alcohol industry. Mm. But interestingly, you know, if you, you know, it wasn't a deliberate tactic, 
but in a way that deflected and distracted people from minimum unit price. So a lot of the heat and energy, you know, against uh, the proposals was focused around this preposterous idea of, you know, raising the age. And there was at that, that consultation stage, the, the opposition to minimum unit price really hadn't, you know, got into full, full um, uh, it wasn't fully operational. So that kind of more happened uh, once they that proposed. I don't know whether they didn't believe it would happen. That could have been it. They discounted it as, you know, that, will, that won't come to pass. Um, but then the strategy, you know, proper... Uh, commitment from governments um, came in 2009 and as you've mentioned you know minimum unit price was only one of over 40 measures that were outlined in in that there was also um, a ban on multi-buy promotions so uh, there was already a ban on multi-buys in the on trade so you couldn't have you know three three glasses of wine for the price of two um, mm. but this then meant that you you couldn't have that in the on in the off trade. So uh, you know three bottles of wine for two, but there were also other measures in there, like the establishment of a very comprehensive rollout of alcohol brief interventions. Mm. Um, so people who you know may ha- may already be harming their health but be unaware of it, um, having that motivational interview with um, preferably a doctor, but but other uh, trained staff as as an alternative, um, so that was that's kind of rolled out across Scotland. There was a major investment in treatment too, so there was a lot of lot of different things in there, not just the kind of upstream preventative policy of minimum unit price. So that was adopted in two thousand nine, and uh, now we have this conversation, as we said in the beginning, because it's the three-year anniversary of minimum unit pricing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I mean, the obvious question is, what happened in the meantime? If you could just summarize it quickly, I think many people have also followed um, the court trials and, and so on. But that is a long period of time there. It is. And the, the first time um, that the legislation was brought forward, which was part of this wider alcohol act um, it was removed because there was not enough political support and so that was 2010 that 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 happened so then there was a new election in Scotland a new government a majority government for the nationalists Um, so you know they were they they brought the the policy back and actually by that point it there was more of a political consensus around the need for and the desirability of minimum unit price. So it was actually a, it was approved by the Scottish Parliament unopposed in 2012. Wow. So that's really when the, the story starts about uh, the legal cases that the industry, the alcohol producers fronted by or led by the Scotch Whiskey Association, where they used every legal means available to um, to try and uh, prevent the policy from being implemented on the basis, as they claimed, that it was illegal under European law. Um, and that was fine, only finally resolved in uh, December 20, 2017 
and then the Scottish government moved to implement the policy as quickly as they they could after that, which was May 2018. And now you have already introduced a little bit the the thinking about the floor price. So could you just tell us how does the Scottish minimum unit price work? So it it basically means that uh, no alcohol can be sold in Scotland. Um, below 50 pence per unit. So whatever, however many units there are in a bottle of vodka or um, a bottle of uh, wine or a can of beer, um, you basically uh, multiply that by 50 pence and that gives you the lowest price at which that product can be sold. And, you know, it's a remarkably simple simple mechanism in that sense um the more the more alcohol there is in a drink the more uh, it has to has to cost and at the time that it was implemented around about 50% of off trade alcohol in Scotland was below 50 pence per unit um oh. as i've mentioned some of it was way below you know um these high strength ciders were were selling for as little as 18 pence per unit so you can see that you know they went up about two and a half times uh overnight um but none none of the alcohol sold in pubs and restaurants was affected because they were already selling at so much higher than 50 50 pence per unit and um, the average price in the on trade here um, is almost two pounds so almost four times what the minimum unit price is and now three years later after this was implemented with this uh, quite substantial price increase for the ultra cheap products is it can you see a difference in consumption and harm, or is it too early to tell? What do you know in, in Scotland about the effects? Yeah, um, well, very quickly it became evident that some of these uh, drinks were just disappearing. So mm -hmm. you know, no one is drinking high-strength cider for the taste, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're drinking it because, you know, it's giving them, you know, a bang for their buck. So there's the, the kind of it was, it was clear that things were happening um just you know ob observing you could see the products were changing the size of the packages was changing what was being stocked was changing people were tending to go uh, often more locally rather than to the supermarket because the price differential was no longer there in the same way But, you know, more importantly, in terms of the evidence base, we've been really fortunate in Scotland that um, a very comprehensive evaluation has been put in place uh, to enable us to understand both the intended and the unintended consequences of minimum unit price. Um, so we, we have uh, evidence from the first year of implementation Uh, that it reduced consumption of off-trade alcohol by three and a half percent. And that was really pretty much what the modelling had told us we could expect. So, you know, that that is um, demonstrating that the policy is working in the way that we'd hoped. Of course, harm data is always a bit slower to emerge. 
but so we've only got one full year of data on alcohol specific deaths but we saw a significant drop in alcohol related deaths in in that year of 10% taking our deaths to the lowest level that had been for 20 years so you know we've got to be cautious because one year doesn't give you a trend okay yeah so but that is that's really encouraging the other the other kind of metric is really around uh, alcohol hospital admissions um and we've not really seen much change over the two years of data that we've got there um but compared in england and wales have actually seen an increase in alcohol uh, related hospital admissions we've we've remained flat but if you look below the the headline figure on hospital admissions to the liver disease uh, component, the alcohol-related liver disease, um, then we have seen reductions in each of those two years. So I think, you know, it's still still early days, but I think there's some really encouraging signs. Um, And the other thing I would say is we're not getting any any suggestion that there are any significant unintended consequences. Um, So we're seeing, seeing indications that it is delivering the expected benefits and we're not seeing any worrying particularly worrying signs about um other things that are happening as a result of it so yeah i think it's a pretty positive place to be and more lots more data to come i think it's very sensible that you also express some caution um about the long-term trends that this is uh, simply too soon But Scotland, the whole case is so interesting because um, you are on one island geographically with Wales and and England. And England uh, didn't introduce the same policy. So it's like a natural experiment uh, comparing what is happening um, because I think cultural trends um, are rather similar or maybe almost identical in, in Scotland and England. And so you can understand what the protective effect of a certain policy intervention might be. Isn't that the way you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, you know, if you think about the economic circumstances and, um, you know, welfare circumstances, those are broadly equivalent. So yeah, absolutely. It does provide you with, with a good comparator. And then there are, of course, uh, different parameters, different aspects of um, the alcohol burden overall on a society. And you mentioned harm to others, children, for example, or violence. But in the beginning, you explained very well that the alcohol-related liver disease was uh, like this big shocking parameter that even made the politicians to recognize, as you were saying, that something bad is going on. And now you said that there is a reduction in alcohol-related liver disease. So is is this perceived? Is there some kind of validation also in the among the political decision makers about this this metric? I think their attention has been somewhat else elsewhere, you know, especially over <laughs> the years or so. Um, but but obviously, you know, we are trying along with others to to make people recognize that you know the the this is having a, a positive effect. But you know, there's there's really a lot of support for minimum unit price in Scotland now. Um, I mean, even before it was implemented, it actually had very high public support. 
Um, you know, it was over 40% of people uh, supported it before it came in, which is quite high considering they, they might have expected, well, I might have to pay more. This is going to, you know, cost me more. Um, but the, the support has even grown since it, it was implemented. And we've now got, you know, half of Scots supportive of minimum unit price. Um, so, you know, I think that can be encouragement to, to other people that, you know, this is not inevitably a policy that people don't like. If they if they see, if they recognise that there, there is a terrible toll of alcohol harm, um, then they are willing, you know, and actually it's a very small price to pay for uh, quite a significant benefit. Um, you know, the moderate drinkers were really almost unaffected by the policy. It's an interesting point that you bring up um, that public support grows once the public actually gets to experience the benefits uh, of, of a policy measure. We see this in Lithuania, for example, they managed to increase the age limit and the support has grown uh, for, for this measure. Um, so I think that's interesting. And that reminds me to ask you also about, this is now more than a decade of alcohol policy conversation in Scotland. And then of course, this laser focus on MUP, but also on alcohol harm and, and broader measurements. And in the beginning, you talked about this lack of recognition and lack of awareness. Where is that now? Is, is there a different societal awareness uh, a decade later? I think I think there is, um, you know, but we have to remember that the alcohol industry is always trying to tell us that this is a marginal problem. You know, it's a few people over there who can't handle their drink is basically their message. The rest of us are responsible drinkers, you know, who who drink moderately. Um, and that's, you know, that's a very attractive message to people, you know, who don't want to reflect on their own alcohol consumption. You know, none of us wants to feel that, you know, we're putting our health at risk or, you know, we're, um, you know, maybe that we should we should change our our attitude to and our our consumption of alcohol. So. That that kind of othering, as we call it, you know, it's those people over there, you know, that unless I'm drinking every day or unless I'm getting drunk or unless I've lost my job or, you know, then I don't have a problem. It's it's somebody else's problem. So I, I think, you know, that is still quite a dominant, dominant message and dominant framing from the alcohol industry. But I do think that collectively in Scotland, there is more awareness of the impact of alcohol and uh, a greater willingness to support um, policies uh, to try and deal with it. Um, I mean, we've we've got some data uh, which will, you know, be published shortly and mm -hmm. it's pretty high levels of, of people, um, not, not a majority, but, you know, a, fair, a fairly large proportion of people think that more needs to be done. And of course, that's what we would be saying too, that, you know, minimum unit price was never uh, a silver bullet, it was never a policy on its own that was going to completely transform quite a, you know, a difficult and harmful relationship that Scotland has with alcohol. Um, and there's still much more that we need to do. 
Yeah, these are two very interesting points, um, Alison, both in terms of uh, the discourse uh, that you have that the alcohol industry tries to shape. I'm always struck by these conversations because I always imagine, like in Germany as well, where, where I'm from, alcohol harm is so pervasive that I think it's present in almost every family. It's present in almost every football club and, you know, school class and People just know somebody who is affected. But when it comes to the policy conversation, what do we do about it? It's this kind of othering that, you know, they're protecting my own identity, thinking that the problem is somewhere else. So to work with uh, shaping the discourse and I think uh, improving the recognition of what the problem is and who is causing the problem, I think that is that is so important. Yeah, I mean, I can see it whenever I talk to um, a politician or whatever, I can see the very first thing that's going through their mind is, can she tell how much I drink, you know, oh, how am I drinking too much, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, it's actually not about each of us as individuals. This is about, you know, a a global industry that is exploiting people and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, promoting an addictive substance and characterizing it as you can't have a decent social life you can't relax and enjoy your time with your friends and your family unless it's lubricated with alcohol um or you know if you if you're feeling down um you know and are isolated as many of us have during you know these lockdowns uh, then the answer, you know, to your your worries and concerns is a relaxing glass, you know, in quotation marks of of uh, wine or beer or whatever. Um, so, you know, this this kind of and and I think we've got this quixotic relationship, uh, many of us with alcohol, where you know we 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 almost you know we put that social pressure on one another to conform and to to drink. Um, but the minute somebody has an issue, then you know we're almost stick. We're stigmatizing them. We're you know kind of isolating them. Um, we're judging them, and you know it, it. It is kind of bizarre to me in a way that we've we've got that that attitude um, and approach to it. But we're we're kind of we're playing into the hands of those who who have a very strong commercial interest in selling us more and more alcohol. We need to be mindful of the way in which the widespread availability and marketing of alcohol is creating an environment in which drinking becomes almost a default for many, many people in many circumstances. Yeah, I think this is a great point because you, as you were saying, very often um, the hope is that an alcohol policy intervention is a silver bullet and we we think that it's it gets implemented and then all the uh, metrics of harm they are just falling they're tumbling down and sometimes i think even keeping it stagnant uh, like you were saying the hospital admissions they are stagnant while in uh, wales and england they were rising um i think maybe even this is a success in this environment where the alcohol industry is investing billions to make people use alcohol make people use more alcohol and then this kind of conversation there about uh, the discourse and some of the lessons that you have learned with this insight into how the alcohol industry is operating is very interesting, I think very insightful. 
So I wanted to ask, do you have other lessons looking at, you know, this entire struggle to get minimum unit pricing now the first three years of implementation? What is it? What are the highlights of what you have learned, Alison? I think the first one would be about evidence and the importance of, of evidence. And, you know, even now we have far less data on alcohol and alcohol harm than we do on drugs. And that's because, or illegal drugs, and that's because, you know, of our of our attitudes towards illegal drugs compared to, to alcohol. So I think, you know, we, having having good data, having good evidence and broadening that evidence beyond the criminal justice sphere, beyond the health sphere, you know, into some of those wider social impacts, the impacts on the economy. I think that's really, really important to make the broadest case possible about, you know, uh, how alcohol affects um, all aspects of, of our society and, um, you know, the importance of, of addressing it. And I think that enables you to sort of broaden the coalition of support. Um, and that's really important that if it's, you know, the, our, our opponents will characterise this as being, you know, public health extremists who, who want to interfere in people's lives and prevent them from, uh, you know, making their, their own choices about, you know, what they consume. But the, you know, if if we're able to point to the fact that alcohol doesn't just affect the drinker, you know, that it's having an effect on family relationships, on children, on co-workers, um, on you know other other people uh, around the drinker, then you know that helps us helps us broaden the case. I do think we've got a challenge about you know that that individualized notion of you know it's, it's my choice what I put into my body it's not affecting anybody else we, we've bought that so wholeheartedly um, that sometimes the whole population argument and those environmental uh, drivers of our decision making you know they're not instinctive to people you know people think that they are entirely autonomous beings you know I, I've chosen these trainers because they're the best trainers, not because I've been told that you know Nike is the best best uh, you know maker of training shoes or whatever. So recognition, that understanding of how how we are influenced by the environment that we um, are living in, you know, and by this constant representation of of alcohol in an attractive and appealing way in a. a you know, widely available. Um, uh, that that takes a bit of helping people to to understand that. Um, but I think we can make better linkages across to tobacco and to unhealthy food because all of these health harming commodities are are the same in the sense of you know having to address the environmental factors if you're actually going to reduce consumption and harm. So I think we can help people on that journey of understanding, um, you know, better than we we have been. I think there is this uh, very interesting research that shows that people say uh, marketing, alcohol marketing influences others, but doesn't influence themselves. Absolutely. I think that's the point you are making here, that it's very difficult for people to imagine, I think, 
people are protecting their autonomy, their identity. Um, and at the same time, we live in these environments that are really geared towards making everybody unhealthier for the profits of these corporations. Like you are saying, they are sharing strategies, uh, they are working together, um, they are learning from each other. So that we should uh, do as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to work, you know, I think more effectively with people uh, with lived experience, you know, whether whether that's children and young people or whether it's, you know, adults in recovery, bringing their experience into the conversation as evidence alongside the public health evidence, I think is is really important. And, you know, it's possibly something that, you know, Alcohol Focus has not done uh, so much of over, you know, the last few years while we were really focusing on getting that public health argument, um, you know, together. Um, but more recently, we have started to, to try and do that, particularly as we were talking about earlier in relation to, to children and young people and trying to find ways to, to enable them to share, you know, the sometimes... You know, sometimes when we think about um, children of uh, people with alcohol problems, we tend to think of the really acute end, you know, and absolutely, you know, children sometimes cannot stay at home because uh, parents' alcohol use is so severe um, and is having such a profound impact on them. But there's an awful lot of children who are telling us that they just feel unsafe or left out when parents are drinking. Now, you know, that that's really sad to hear that. Um, and, you know, so rather than, again, it being about a small group of people who are affected in a really, you know, severe way, it's, it's recognising that actually, you know, very, very large groups of uh, children and young people can be affected, you know, but albeit maybe in a lower level way, but all of that adds up to quite a lot of unhappiness. Mm. And I think that point brings us, I think this is a great uh, reflection. Um, what can be done um, better or more? Who can become part of the coalition whose stories and experiences are valid and validated by involving them in, in this so uh, thanks for sharing. And that's what I mentioned in the beginning. We look to your work there, I think, with the Children's Parliament, for example. This is really excellent. And, and we try to export this and inspire others to, to learn from you here. And then I think, Alison, that brings us into the conversation about the future a little bit. What, does the, what do the next few years hold for alcohol pricing? in uh, Scotland and alcohol policy overall? Are you set with the strategy, the 40 measures you have and the MUP or is it under attack? Are you developing it? Where is this going? On minimum unit price specifically, um, the, the price that we have 50 pence per unit is, uh, is really a bit too low. They, so the policy was approved by the Scottish Parliament back in 2012. So if we even just look at inflation between 2012 and today, um, that would suggest a minimum unit price of at least 61 pence per unit. 
But, you know, that feels unambitious just to reinstate the, the kind of original position. I think now that we know that this policy, you know, is bringing benefits and that there aren't really any significant unintended consequences, we, we need to increase the impact so that more people can benefit and more lives are saved. So we're arguing for a minimum unit price of at least 65 pence per unit. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not that that high even because, I mean, you look at Ireland, you mentioned earlier, they, they're looking at equivalent of about 73 pence per unit. And then going forward, it, it really should be linked to inflation as an absolute minimum, but then kept under review to ensure that we're calibrating it so that it is bringing the the widest benefit without creating any unintended consequences. I thought it was interesting in the beginning. um, I just wanted to pick this up. Um, You were explaining that the authority for alcohol taxation lies with Westminster. Um, so not in Scotland, and um, I think they have frozen the duty for many years, so alcohol has effectively become cheaper um, in the UK as such, and minimum unit pricing in Scotland has, if I understand it correctly, done something to mitigate that effect, um, and now you need to do more. So I wanted to ask whether there there is this this challenge that comes from the UK government that undermines alcohol policy making, or how you navigate that uh, maybe tension going forward. Yes, it's it's difficult when we don't have the the power to increase alcohol taxation, um, but. You know, we would hope that the review of alcohol duty, which the UK government's committed to, might at least make the system a bit more logical and link it more directly to alcohol content. That would be that would be progress. Um, but we know that the alcohol industry will obviously they were effective in lobbying the UK government for a further freeze on alcohol duty in the in the recent budget, mm-hmm. um, which you know is really unhelpful. Uh, as you say, that is effectively a cut. Um, so you know we need to, we need to address that. This is where the whole issue of the uh, the coronavirus crisis and the impact on the hospitality. Uh, a sector is being used, I think, to um, put leverage on on governments to make concessions, whether that's about licensing arrangements or it's about duty. Um, you know, it's all it's all being argued that this is a helping hand to the the hospitality trades, mm. um, and that I think is is really concerning for us as as alcohol advocates that um, uh, some of the progress that we've made could be undermined by yeah. uh, those sorts of concessions. And I thought this was also very interesting, Alison, um, that there around 2008, even raising the minimum legal age was included in the package of proposals, I think, that were 
then being consulted about and that was removed. So that had the biggest opposition there. As you were alluding to, I thought that that is strategically very, very smart. Probably it was not done on intention, but uh, to make the alcohol industry or the or the opponents have to choose their battle. I think that's what worked in Ireland as well, in Lithuania. So that's very smart to me. And I just wanted to ask, is somebody bringing this back or is, is this off the table? Are there other bolder moves that still need to be taken uh, in Scotland? The, the, the main things that we're um, advocating for at the moment are around alcohol marketing, Mm. alcohol availability and alcohol labelling. Um, so the the issue about uh, raising the, the age of purchase, that's that's not really a live debate at the moment. Um, although I think there's very good grounds for it, given what we know about the impact of alcohol on brain development um, and, you know, into the early 20s. Um, but I think uh, this is what brings us back to the um, the best buys, and uh, we have very limited. We have a, we have a really poor self regulatory system um, when it comes to alcohol marketing, which is effectively you know really no regulation at all. Um, and the evidence has been building about the impact of alcohol marketing on children and young people, um, that it reduces the age at which they start drinking, increases the amount that they're drinking and uh, makes it more likely that they'll develop an alcohol problem in the longer term. So um, Alcohol Focus Scotland has been leading work in this area for some time with, with international colleagues who have been uh, helping us and sharing their expertise. Um, we've produced one report um, uh, I think about three years ago now, and we are now producing as an updated report. Um, and the Scottish government had committed to a consultation on alcohol marketing later this year, um, and that had quite broad cross-party support. So we're hopeful, whatever the outcome of our elections tomorrow, um, that you know there may well be a consultation on uh, restrictions on alcohol marketing. So. That, that's a really important area of work for us. And on alcohol availability, um, I think there's still, I, I think there are emergent challenges there, particularly around online purchasing. So a kind of uh, a locality-based approach to alcohol uh, uh, licensing starts to, starts to look uh, limited in its its impact when when you're seeing the increase in online purchasing and you know remote delivery. So um, I think we already had question marks over uh, how our licensing system was controlling availability because effectively there's no way of reducing the number of places to buy alcohol. Uh, you can only prevent an increase um, mm. if you have a local policy to that um, to that purpose. Um, but you know we we have well 
people are people are drinking an average of one and a half times the low risk drinking guidelines. So my view is that we have an oversupply of alcohol, um, certainly in many places in Scotland, um, but we have no means of of adequately addressing that at the moment, and we've got quite in, inconsistent approaches across the country. And and while you know you want decisions to be made. Um, that are appropriate to local circumstances, that's not really a, a full explanation of the, the degree of variability that we've, we're seeing in decision-making in the licensing system at the moment. Yeah, so this is really interesting to listen to you. I have learned uh, some interesting things now, um, both on marketing and availability. I think this point about you know on-demand delivery, online purchases, and the challenges that brings to uh, limiting alcohol availability is very important. Um, countries have to learn from each other. So we'll see if you guys in Scotland will be again leading by example there. Um, I, I was listening to you now, Alison. I wanted to make the joke that one of the three best buys you did very well with minimum unit pricing. And now maybe in the next five to 10 years, we'll also see Scotland leading by example, both on marketing and availability. I think especially availability, this is a big challenge and it's very interesting how you talk about it and what will, what is possible to, uh, I think, realize going forward in Scotland. Yeah, well, you know, we're all learning from each other. You, um, you, you mentioned Lithuania, our, our neighbours in Ireland, you know, uh, Russia, there's there's so many uh, countries who are uh, recognizing that they have have a serious alcohol problem and trying to to take innovative approaches. So, you know, that's why the work that Movendi does is so so important in in trying to help network uh, internationally because. Um, we we all have to learn from one another. There's nobody got all the answers, and we all make a bit of progress in some areas, but you know maybe not so much in others. And uh, you have to you have to keep going and um, trying to see what the next frontier is uh, in terms of pushing pushing forward uh, to to try and reduce this this terrible toll of harm that we're experiencing. Wow, I think this was a brilliant uh, concluding remark, actually. Um, I think painting the picture of how we can uh, support each other, that this is uh, local in Scotland, in the UK, but in a way also an international issue. Um, so thanks for that. And thank you one more time, Alison, for uh, coming on the podcast, taking time to discuss this. And uh, finally, good luck with the elections tomorrow. Thank you. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's work to introduce the world's best alcohol policy models and shed more light on how alcohol policy solutions work, what their potential is and how advocacy efforts can help bring about evidence-based alcohol policy making. In the show notes we share key resources with you about the alcohol policy model in Scotland in general and minimum unit pricing in particular. And if you have feedback or questions or any suggestions, please feel free to get in touch.
I'd love to hear and read from you. My email address is, as always, mike.dunbier at movendi.ngo. You can also reach me on Twitter and find my contact details in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Tarakaranchi Goda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dunbia. Our theme music for this episode comes from LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for tuning in. Stay well and safe until next time and talk to you soon.